0: Thank you, Randy, and uh, thank the young man for playing the special this morning. How many of you know the title of that song? Raise your hand so I can see it. One, two, uh, a few of you, what is it? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, yeah. Good job, that takes a lot of courage. Appreciate it very much. Good to be with you again and uh, just uh, refresh ourselves about where we are and what we're doing you've had a great summer down here i'm sure have you had any rain oh, a little bit we had 4,500 last night Eat your hearts out <laughs> up there where we live little bit little bit dry and a little bit hot but god is good all the time is he not yeah some of you think so okay good i'd like you to join me this morning in reading the scriptures Um, I went online and watched your pastor I think it was last Sunday where he was commending everybody for bringing their Bibles to church wasn't it last Sunday where he said how many of you bring your Bibles to church I don't (laughs) and I thought man I'm going down to preach I probably should just carry one (laughs) but mine's right here so (laughs) it is a Bible Trust me, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation, and I'd like you to join me as I read by standing in honor of the Word of God. Acts, the 13th chapter, and as specified earlier, verses 1 through 12. If you saw the announcements, that's where we are today. What in the world are we doing? Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets, teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who's called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they also had John as a helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn a proconsul away from the truth, the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell on him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. God, we pray that you'll bless your word as we've read it this morning. Uh, You've promised to do that. And wherever it is read, you bring light, the entrance of your word, gives light it gives understanding to the hearer I pray that we'll understand what you're trying to say to us what the big idea here is Dr. Luke's record and then we might be moved by it and exercised and be able to answer the question what in the world are we doing we give you praise for this time together in your name Jesus amen you may be seated Dan Ryland, executive pastor of 12 Stone Church in Lawrenceville, Georgia, writes these words, caring for the body of Christ is an important part of any local church ministry. Jesus modeled the leadership of a loving shepherd who cares for the flock. However, he never allowed that to trump the mission. True discipleship reproduces mature believers who hold evangelism as a priority. In this context, he says, I'm referring to evangelism as nothing more complex than people inviting the unchurched to church. When this slows or nearly drops, stops, the church of any size can move into a maintenance mode. Maintenance is practically defined as doing the same things with the same people over and over again. He says evangelism is about new people. In this chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, we didn't read it this morning, but he wrote it. He also wrote the book of the Acts. He wrote there about Jesus' encounter with a very short individual, a Jewish tax collector. As Jesus was walking with his disciples, we're told in the ancient and reconstructed city of Jericho, He happened, as it were, to look up in a tree. Anything Jesus did was on purpose, so I'm sure he knew what was going to happen when he came there, but he looked up in the tree, and everybody knows the song about Zacchaeus, You Come Down. He saw this short individual. He invited him to come down off of his perch, and then invited himself to the man's house. And as you read that account in Dr. Luke's first writing, you see that the change, a change overtook this man immediately. In fact, he said to the Lord, look, I'm going to give all, uh, half of all that I have to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to give four times as much back to those individuals as I took away from them. He was a Jewish tax, tax collector, and he had ample opportunity to defraud. In response to that, Jesus said in Luke the 19th chapter, today salvation has come to this house. And then he went on to state his mission, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You might say that everything that Jesus said and did was geared to that end, seeking and saving the lost. Now Dr. Luke went on to to finish his account of the life and times of Jesus as it were. He wrote about the details concerning Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, you can read that in the last chapter of that book that bears his name. And later he wrote a second narrative to the same individual to whom he had addressed the first, the, the gospel to. His name was Theophilus, a lover of God the first account that he wrote to Theophilus, as he says earlier in this book of the Acts, was to record what Jesus began to do and teach in his mission to seek and save the lost. Those are my words at the end. What Jesus began to do and teach obviously had to do with his mission, seeking and saving the lost. That was the first account. And the second account was about what his followers, that is, Jesus' followers, in his absence continued to do and teach in connection with that same mission of seeking and saving the lost. The Holy Spirit had, a prom- had arrived as promised. Remember, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, the first chapter of this book of the Acts. You'll be witnesses in, to me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll receive power for that. And indeed the Holy Spirit arrived as promised. Those disciples immediately set out to do the very thing that he had told them to do, that is to seek lost people who needed to be saved. In fact, you may remember, and this is a review of what's in this this book of of, uh, Luke to Theophilus, the Acts. You may remember that the Holy Spirit very specifically Having arrived as promised, had Peter say this to the authorities when he was questioned as to why he was doing the things he was doing, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You may recall a little bit later in this narrative that Philip, down there in the desert, Climbing up into the chariot with a man from Ethiopia began with Isaiah's description of Jesus, which is found in Isaiah 53, and from there went on to tell this African about the one who came to seek and to save him. You may recall also that following that, one uh, Ananias was told by that Holy Spirit to go to a street called Straight to tell an incapacitated Pharisee whom we knew then as Saul, we come to know in this chapter as Paul, to tell him about the one who'd been seeking him to save him. And following that, Peter obeyed the voice of the Holy Spirit. He went to the house of a lost Gentile to tell him how to be saved by the crucified and risen Jesus. So what Jesus began to do and teach, as recorded in the book of of Luke, he continued through his followers, seeking and saving the lost. That was God's plan from eternity past for his son, always has been, always will be, and it is God's plan for all of those who name the name of his son Jesus who've come to believe in him. God has always been on a mission to seek and to save the lost, and he has straight paths that lead to faith in his son. You are here as a testimony to that truth this morning. God has never been, in other words, in maintenance mode, always on mission. This passage that we read this morning, just a few minutes ago, Acts 13, 1 through 12, emphasizes this truth. You read there, they were at Antioch in the church. A church came into existence in this city that was north of Jerusalem, northwest of Damascus, Uh, Next time time I come, if I have an inclination to do this, I will, I'll bring along a PowerPoint presentation because I know now that they can plug it in and you can see it on the screen. But I'm asking you to visualize the Eastern Mediterranean world, can you see it? Can you see Jerusalem down there to the south on this map? See the map there? It's down here, and up here is Damascus, and up here in the north, east corner of the Mediterranean Sea, just off the coast some 16 miles is Antioch in what was called Syria. That's where this church is located. It had come into existence because believers from Cyprus, an island some hundred miles or so, 75 to 100 miles west of there in the Mediterranean, some believers from Cyprus and some believers from, from Cyrene had come there with the gospel seeking to see lost people saved. And they weren't just interested in Jewish folks either. You know, the church began in Jerusalem, all Jewish believers presumably, and branched out from there to Samaritans who were kind of half Jewish and half something else, and then had gone to Antioch, and there these Jewish believers came and went to the Gentiles as well. And a whole bunch of those folks responded to the good news about Jesus. So you read in verse 1, There were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. And then they were introduced to us here. There were five of them, Barnabas, and again I'm presuming because you all bring your Bibles to church every Sunday, I was told so in the video from a week ago, that you've probably read Acts and you know that Barnabas was introduced to us in chapter four in in this book by Luke. And he's also mentioned again in chapter 9. He was from Cyprus, this island just off the coast there. He was a Cypriot. He was Jewish, but he was a member of the Jewish diaspora. That means he'd been uh, dispersed. He he didn't live in the Holy Land. But he was of the tribe of Levi, so you might call him a Levitical Cypriot. He was known for his generosity. He had sold a, a but at least a parcel of ground, if not more than that, and had brought the proceeds and give, given it to the apostles to help care for the needs of the fledgling church in Jerusalem. He was also one who encouraged others. He, he'd encouraged the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to accept the former persecutor of the church, whose name was Saul, when they were afraid of him, afraid he was there to do them damage. And he'd also encouraged the same Saul to come to Antioch to help him there with the ministry of in that church of Jewish and Gentile believers. So Barnabas is one of those leaders. Simeon, he, he had a nickname, that, or perhaps it was a description. When, when Luann and I were in India, we went over there. I went over there nine times to help with uh, training of pastors in our, in our churches. It was an effort that we had with Campus Crusade years ago now. I was there, the first time I was there to do some training, and she was there later with me to do some follow-up, but I met this man who was one of the trainers that was associated with Crew, it was called Crew, uh, Campus Crusade then, it became Crew, and he was very, very, very dark. In India, you know, there's all complexions from very light colored to very dark, and he was as dark as if he'd come from Nigeria itself. That's what Niger means, it's here. This. Um, a man named Simeon had a nickname, Niger. It means black, dark, complexioned. In fact, the other Indian men in, in the group that I was training called this trainer the black one, Niger. So he was undoubtedly an African Jewish believer, probably from North Africa. Lucius of Cyrene. Now, this, Cyrene was an important Roman city in Libya. And you may remember that the man who carried Jesus' cross from uh, Jerusalem up to Golgotha was Simon of Cyrene. And then Manan, an interesting leader, an unlikely leader in the church, since he grew up with a man named Herod, and if your name was Herod in those days or any other day since, it wasn't a good name to have. Herod was a wicked individual. Herod the Tetrarch, he's called here, he was a ruler of part of what his father Herod the Great had ruled over in Palestine. Talk about an ungodly household. This Herod, the Tetrarch, ruled from 4 BC to 39 AD. He was the one who had all the boy babies killed in Bethlehem seeking to to kill Jesus very early in his uh, reign and he reigned through 39 AD. He he wreaked havoc on the early church. So Manan either grew up as sort of a a ward of, of Herod with Herod the Tetrarch, or maybe he was a foster brother. We don't know for sure, but he was connected to that household. And you say, what a household to produce a leader in the early church in Antioch. But God, on mission, had somehow reached down sought and saved Anaean. There he is in the church in Antioch. What a group of leaders that church had. Seems from the names that they had, they were quite diversified. Even different nationalities, perhaps. But that didn't produce any prejudice in them. They were unified. You'd expect church leadership to be unified, would you not? If you don't have unified church leadership, you're in a world of hurt. These guys were unified. They apparently were of one mind. They got along together famously. No ethnic distinctions, nothing. It says, while they were ministering to the Lord, verse 2, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I wonder what that could have been. In the first century AD, there were plenty of lost people who needed to be found, needed to be saved, right there in Syria, right there in Antioch. But the work the Holy Spirit was talking about wasn't in Antioch, as it turns out. It wasn't even in Syria. In fact, there's no indication that any of those leaders, including Saul and Barnabas, knew what or where that work was. And... People being what they are, you might you might think that those five men would argue with that. Man, there are meth- enough lost people right here in, in uh, Syria, in Antioch. If we send Saul and Barnabas out like this, almost half of our leadership team is going to be gone. What are we going to do? How are we going to maintain this church if these two guys leave us? But they didn't argue. With prayer and fasting, Simeon, the black, Manan from Herod's household from his from his youth, and Lucius from Cyrene laid their hands on their two friends and sent them away. Actually, rather, it seems that they just let them go. If you read verse 3, it says, when they had fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Okay, I envision Your map again in your head, the one that's up there where the cross is, and you see where Antioch, remember where Antioch is up there on the. You with me? Okay. Oh, yeah, it's right up over there. There's Antioch, and here's the Mediterranean Sea coming around Turkey and up in the Adriatic and down around Greece, okay? There's Antioch, and over out into the Mediterranean about 75 miles off the coast is Cyprus. Before you get there, Antioch, 16 miles west to the edge, the north north eastern edge of the Mediterranean, is the city of Seleucus. Seleucia is about 16 miles west of Antioch on the edge of the sea, and it served as a port for Antioch. Actually, it was kind of a suburb, you might say, as a port city for Antioch, but also for most of ancient Syria. So why did they go to Seleucia, why didn't they strike out overland and go up into Turk? what is modern Turkey? Or go the other way, up into the Black Sea and the Caspian area, up into modern Russia and over in there. I know that the disciples went everywhere. It's, it's quite a study seeing where the, the 12 went following the crucifixion and following the dispersal from Jerusalem. But why didn't they do that? Why'd they go down to the sea coast? I don't know, it doesn't say. But the Holy Spirit must have told them To go there, he told Philip, very specifically, when he talked to him, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. It wasn't ambiguous, was it? He told Peter, uh, pardon me, he told Ananias to go to the street called Straight and there to find in the house of Judas a man from Tarsus. He told Peter, get up, go downstairs and accompany the three men who are at the gate of the house where you're staying, and he went to see Cornelius. So why wouldn't he have been equally clear to Saul and Barnabas about going to Seleucia? Leave Antioch, he sent them out, and by the way, head right for Seleucia. So here we are at Seleucia. I mean, the sea's in front of us, where do we go now? Because that Mediterranean Sea, you know, there's all kinds of nations, there's Italy, there's Spain, France even has Some connection down there on the Mediterranean coast and down the other way you go around past Egypt and all the way out over toward Morocco. So where do we go from here? I don't know, Saul. Maybe, hey, I'm I'm from Cyprus. I know some people over there. I've got family there. Maybe we could go over there and, and, you know, check in with them. Uh, I don't think it was that ambiguous either. He had been very precise with everybody else. He'd always directed a seeking and saving mission, that is, the Holy Spirit. He knew what he was doing and where those two men were supposed to go. And he didn't have just a few of Barnabas' friends and families on Cyprus in mind. He had the whole island in his sights. And he didn't just have the whole island in his sights. He had all of modern, what is modern Turkey in his sights. He had your ancestors and mine in his sights from the European nations. So he was very specific. He sent them to Cyprus on purpose for a purpose. We're told they took a man named John with them. He's called Mark also, according to what Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 10. And after about a hundred mile, I think it was, journey, because they came down around to the south, southeastern tip of Cyprus, they came to the port city of Salamis, those three men. And they immediately began the mission of seeking the lost among the Jews. Didn't have to look too far. Verse five says, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And that would be the plan from then on. God who seeks to save the lost inspired this converted Pharisee later to write that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek Romans 1:16 for the rest of his life this man Saul who as we find out this chapter proceeds name Paul his, his Greek name or his gentile name he went to the gentiles or to the Jews first and then to the gentiles and I'd submit that any church is going to be blessed if you follow, if they follow that mode of evangelism and missions, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Those two Hebrew Christian missionaries and their helper worked their way down westward through the Roman senatorial province of Cyprus. I said senatorial because the governor was appointed by the Roman Senate and answered directly to Rome, a senatorial province. Their activity wasn't specified, but one might expect that they'd do the same thing that they started there in Salamis, uh, through the districts of Amathus, ancient regions of Cyprus and Lepethos, to the district of Paphos, P-A-P-H-O-S. Not pathos, P-A-T-H, but P-A-P-H-O-S. Verse six, six and seven, when they'd gone through the island as far as Paphos. The city there, also named Pappas, was the capital of Cyprus. And the Roman official who governed from there, as I said, was appointed by the Roman Senate. His official title was proconsul. You may remember Pontius Pilate, who had the power in Palestine when Jesus was uh, doing his ministry there. He was a prefect. A proconsul had a whole lot more power. This man was the governor of the whole island Ruling, as it were, from Paphos, which is the city clear on the western end of the island. Most important man on the island. He's not only important, he was also intelligent, because the text tells us so. He was smart enough to look for answers beyond the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. The Roman counterpart was Venus, and you might expect what that goddess was connected with. Cyprus was known for the worship of Aphrodite. And it was this man, verse seven, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Are you getting a feel for this? God is always on mission. He never takes any time off. And not to discount, I wish your pastor would have taken advantage of his sabbatical more than he has. God never takes a sabbatical. Maybe that's why pastor doesn't either, I don't know. But God, always on mission, and the mission is to seek and save the lost. So 275 miles to the east, he directs in the city of Antioch, Saul and Barnabas on a straight path that led to the most important man on the island of Cyprus. You couldn't have planned this any better, and you didn't, and neither did they. They were nobodies, they had no sending agency, they had no political connections, they had no Human authority, they were unknown Jews on an island that was dominated by the worship of a pagan goddess, the goddess of love, lust, beauty, passion, and procreation. But, but here they are in the presence of the proconsul who wants to hear what they have to say. You couldn't have planned this and you didn't. Oh yeah, there was another individual there as well. But he didn't want anyone, much less the governor, to hear from them. Now, all we know about him is what the text tells us. Apparently, the text doesn't say this, but apparently from the inference that he was some sort of a consultant to the proconsul. He was hanging around there. He had the ear of the proconsul. He was a Jew, albeit not a very good Jew, as we'll see. He was named, interestingly enough, Son of Yeshua, Yeshua, it's is, is the name Jesus, it's Hebrew form. Joshua is another form of that name, son of Yeshua, son of Joshua, bar Jesus, that's what it means. It means son of the Savior, ironically, he was anything but. And he was also called Elemas, because that name implies a magician, magi, magi who came to see Jesus, he would have been in that train. Only he'd gone a step or two way farther than that. He was a magician slash sorcerer slash witch doctor slash shaman. All of that rolled into one. He would have had a mixture of truth and error. He dabbled in the occult with a direct connection to Satan. His words would have been false. He had the ear of the proconsul, so he was dishing into the ears of the proconsul false teaching, false doctrine. The proconsul may have had an interest in Judaism, and that's why he had this Jewish man, Jewish prophet, so to speak. There was another like him earlier in the book of the Acts mentioned in connection with the Samaritan ministry, but very much these two were in error. Uh... This man was violently opposed, very much opposed to the strangers, two strangers in town. Verse eight says he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Or in the words of Saul, from then on, as I said, will be known as Paul, because here is where the name change comes. He was full of deceit and fraud. He was all about, verse 10, making, the, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Actually, Saul had some other rather unflattering things to say about him, and you know, we we, uh, we read the scriptures, and uh, if we're not careful, and uh, I'd like to give a class on reading, not that I do it right all the time, but I hear guys read the scripture, and we get to be monotone, and everything is flat, and it's just like there's one dimension to the words, but I don't think that's, you know, you read this, it's not, an, and so Saul said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteous. I think he said, you son of the devil, just like You've heard this kind of language, haven't you? You son of the devil. You enemy of all uh, righteousness. I think it was very pronounced, very, very in his face. But those things were deserved because this man was seeking to make God's straight paths to faith in Jesus crooked. Actually, if you look in verse 8, the words translated turn away, they're really the same ones translated in verse 10, make crooked. By the way, you may be certain that the devil continues to desire that no one gives heed to the plain truth about Jesus, and he is still seeking to make crooked the straight paths that lead to faith in Jesus. He doesn't want anyone on that straight path. But the devil and his minion, Elemas, were foiled in their attempts to blind Sergius Paulus to the truth. Instead, the magician slash sorcerer was blinded himself he lost his physical sight for a while note Paul's words in verse 11 now behold the hand of the Lord is upon you and you'll be blind and not see the sun for a time and immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand the result of all this verse 12 then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened being amazed at the teaching of the Lord a straight shot from over there in Antioch in Syria to Paphos to Sergius Paulus who believes. God is always on a mission. 51 years ago, God told a youth pastor to leave a city where he was serving and go to a small town in another state, a rural community to plant a church. Almost as soon as he and his wife arrived in that town, He saw a long-haired hippie wearing a cowboy hat walking down the street. Looks sort of like a clown. It was at the height of the Vietnam War. You that are old enough to remember that. And that epoch of history, that era of history with hippies and yippies on college campuses all across the country in protest. And that young pastor who was planning the church actually said to himself, or at least thought, I thought we'd left all that behind in the city. And he was disgusted as he looked at the young man with the cowboy hat and the long hair. One of the first folks who began attending that church plant told him there was a young man in town she wanted him to meet. The young church planter visited the sale barn cafe where that lady operated the cafe and and, uh, managed it, cooked the best pies in the world but now you know who I'm talking about. She introduced him to her pastor as the young, this man as the, to the pastor as the young man she'd mentioned because as soon as the pastor got in the door to see that lady, the door opened behind him and in walked the clown. In walked the long-haired hippie with a cowboy hat on. You can imagine his surprise. Those two men in their early 20s talked for an hour. The hippie chain smoking the whole time they sat in a little booth there pastor doesn't remember much of what was said, but the hippie does. Several weeks later, they met again at a gas station on the edge of town, and the hippie said, Mabel says that you want to have a Bible study in somebody's house, how about mine? You could have knocked that fledgling pastor over with a feather, but he agreed. And five or six folks came to the first study and began coming on a regular basis, none of them from the church, and none of them professing believers in Jesus. After the third gathering, the group dispersed leaving, uh, to go home, leaving the hippie and the pastor for some reason alone in, in the hippie's house on the edge of town there, kind of a dilapidated farmhouse. Have you ever, have you ever asked Jesus into your life to, to take over your life, the pastor asked the hippie. And the hippie said yes. And the pastor thought inwardly, groaning to himself, I'm gonna hear another story about I was baptized as an infant. When was that, the pastor followed up. Well, it was uh, sometime last week after the Bible study, I went out under the stars and looked up and I said, I don't know how this works and I'm scared to death, but you can have me. You could have knocked the pastor over with a feather. In June, Luanna and I visited Dan and Susan Driscoll in Northeast Iowa, where they finished serving as pastor and wife of the E-Free Church. They've been there at least 20 years. But they're still very, very much involved in that community in ministry to folks who are in similar situations as they were 51 years ago. When Saul and Barnabas set foot on the island of Cyprus, they had no idea whom God was preparing to bring to faith in his son. They had no idea that a Roman government official would believe their message. They had no idea that his family would also, and no idea that the way would be paid for them to go to the heart of what is modern Turkey with the good news, but like their master, they were on mission to see lost people saved. What in the world are we doing? Are we in maintenance or mission mode? You and I have no idea where folks we live next to or whom we meet are on their individual spiritual journeys. We can look at people and make guesses about them. There's a guy across the street from me, he's into meth, he's hiding out from the law, he lives in his basement all day long and he goes out at night the people next to him. You, you, you have no idea where people are in their spiritual journey. You can look at people like that and say, lost causes. They'd never come to Christ. We don't know whom he is seeking and how straight the path is for that person on the road to Christ. They don't need three points and a poem and a prayer from us. And oftentimes, we aren't interested in talking to people because we don't think we can say it right. We don't have to have a sermon with a nice little tidy wrap up. And we certainly don't have to have a close, like the car salesman, to try to make sure the thing happens. But we have a responsibility. What people need isn't a presentation. What they need is a conversation. God has straight paths to lead to faith in his son Jesus. We don't know in whose heart he's been working, but we do know that he wants us to be involved in what Jesus began to do and teach and what his followers continue to do and teach. He's never in maintenance mode, God is not. And he wants us to be on mission with him. So I ask again, what in the world are we doing? What in the world am I doing? Help us, our Father, to see the world like you see it. People all around us. Another song we could have sung, people need the Lord in a world of broken dreams. He's the open door. People need the Lord. Help us to see people like you see them. Refresh us that you're in charge of this thing. You're very specific. You are sending us to people whose heart you've already prepared. May we answer the question positively positively this morning about what in the world we are doing. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.